Okay, um, Aaron asked if I would preach today, um, just to tell you, get a, give a little indication of what I'm like. I'm a pleaser. I've always been a pleaser. It's been a problem in my life. I didn't realize how much of a problem it was until just recently, but um, um, normally through my life, I've even I, my one of my earliest memories I was probably like four. I think I was four. And I remember being in the kitchen and mom was there. And I don't remember what she was upset about, but she was upset. And I remember pleading with my mother, mom, be happy, mommy, be happy. So even like at four, I've been a pleaser. Um, I've had problems to where I actually what I found out by being a pleaser is I disconnect myself from from connections with others because I'm more of an observer. I, I observe people to see what would please them, what they like, what they don't like, what's the right thing to say when you're with them, and um, what what you could do to please them. Because if they their um, idea of who I was is bad, that would hurt my feelings. So I gave them too much power to define who I was as a pleaser. And I'm learning that I have sacrificed real connections with people because I've never shown my real self and my real opinion because I'm always worried about what opinion I'm going to air so that it doesn't displease them and then they don't want, they'll cut me off from society. So um, when Aaron asks me to share, that pleaser part comes out of me and I, I want to come up with the same amazing stuff that Aaron has where he comes, I don't know where he comes up with this stuff because I Google it and I don't see what he sees. So, you know, obviously it's inspired, but holy cow, he comes up with things and you're just like, what? And so being the pleaser I am, he um, asked me to preach and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'll try to come up with some of the same stuff he comes up with and then I end up with a nervous breakdown. Um, To make it even worse, you know, you hear about people that go through counseling to get their master's in counseling because I've heard this comment and I don't really like it, but I've heard people say, that those who go into counseling are really going into counseling because they're trying to figure themselves out, and that's who counselors are. But they've got it all wrong. Um, I've took, I got my master's in counseling, and really it screwed me up because now I'm constantly diagnosing myself. I got into a huge fight with Jamie one time. We were in on a road trip, and we got into a fight. It was stupid, and I was angry. I was furious and I came home and you know here's John he's missed me for a couple days and he's welcoming me home and I'm like shut up I don't even want to talk to you right now (laughs) and so I sat down and I'm I'm in a total vent and I'm just venting 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 and then I dawned on me oh my gosh maybe I have a borderline personality disorder (laughs) so I'm getting all the books I can and borderline personality order uh, disorder are those who have such disordered emotions and thoughts that they barely make it in the world, but they're able to make it, but they're just a mess. And so I read about that and decided, well, maybe I don't have a borderline personality disorder. I'm not that bad. But I think I might be bipolar because when Aaron asked me to preach, I was in a manic stage, and I'm like, yes, I can do this. I can conquer the world. I can preach about all this stuff. And then... About a week later, when I'm in a depressive state, I'm saying, oh, my gosh, what did I get myself into? I'm, I'm a worm. I'm a terrible person. And, and then it just turns into a huge mess. So after my nervous breakdown this week, um, 
I sat down and I decided, what do I really want to talk about? And what part of what I want to say today is bringing more of my authentic self, not my pleaser self, not my bipolar self, not my borderline personality to self or anything. I just want to bring who I am to the table and tell you this is what I've been kind of seeing myself in my own life and maybe, just maybe, it'll have an impact or a connection with one person in this room. So, And then I would know I would be as successful. So I started thinking about sat down, and I thought, I'm not Aaron. I'm not going to come up with some heavy revelation that you're all going to go away with thinking, holy, you know, and then you try to Google it, and you can't find it. That's always annoying, right? Um, But I'm going to just bring what I know to the table. And so something about me is I've been a teacher for 14 years. I taught literature to middle school kids and then a counselor for three and I thought, you know what, here's, here's the deal. Our Bible is full of stories. Stories told by people trying to express their human experience throughout life. And I've done this for 14 years. This shouldn't be that big of a problem. And one thing I used to tell my students, which I loved teaching literature, absolutely loved it, because there is so much, you could take the three little pigs and you can turn it into something huge. If you use symbolism and if you use if you bring your life experience into the experience of the three little pigs, you can come out up with a whole bunch of stuff. And you can have great discussions in class. And I learned so much about the students that I had the uh, privilege of teaching for the last 14 years. It was, it was just so much fun. So I thought, well, let's do that. We'll do that. I'll do that as a sermon today. And we'll talk about a story that's been um, connecting with me. And, you know, I'd like to say that I pray about it, and God says, this is what you're going to be preaching about, and this is what I want to tell the people, but it just never happened. I, I kept getting Abraham but um, I and Journey, but, I, you know, and then you go through the whole, so was that me? Or, you know, so it was just, you know, a whole rumble of, and I'm rambling, so we're going to move on. <sighs> so I decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick with Abraham and Sarah, because I I started looking into the story and I thought, this is great. And when I taught literature to my kids, I said, you know what, we're going to talk about this story. And sometimes we get caught up in whether we're right or whether we're wrong or whether we're analyzing the story right or not or whether it's historically accurate. We're going to throw all that away and we're going to find out what do we learn as human beings from the story. And the good news is, Most of the authors I chose had already passed away, so they can't come out of their grave and argue with me. So, you know, (laughs) Um, I think sometimes when we do study, when we study through the Bible, we look at the the stuff in the Bible and we try to make it historically accurate. There's so many um, documentaries on TV where they say that things have to be scientifically accurate. How did the Red Sea part? There's got to be some kind of scientific evidence about that and, it just, um, I think we've taken the life out of scripture when we try to make it historically accurate, when we try to make it scientifically accurate. We're actually trying to measure these stories according to the world standards. And I don't think that's what it's meant to be. I think it's supposed to be a story that reaches the heart. And it should be a heart matter, not a scientific historical, what the world thinks should be accurate today. And so that's how I approach this. Um, 
There's been a lot of changes in our church. I don't know if you guys have noticed lately. And what I have been able to see this is this is a journey that I think that we're traveling. I don't think we're there yet, but I don't think um, the destination is necessarily the learning part of the journey. I think it's actually the journey towards the destination is our learning part. And I found that even in my life during the harder times, I've learned more about myself than I've learned during the times of celebration. So a lot of times if I'm going through struggle, which this last year has been quite a struggle for me, um, you know, most of you guys know that my mother died in October, so this is kind of a hard day for me. Um, I got shingles. Who gets shingles? I, I thought only like 80-year-old people get shingles. I, I got shingles. That was a nightmare. We've had turmoil at work, and then I'll, to top it off, John and I decided, well, maybe we'll start looking for a house at, like this is the best time of year to do it when the houses are overpriced and everybody wants them, which is bizarre, right? So I've had a lot of changes this year, a lot of hard times, but yet I think we learn the most about ourselves during those type of journeys. Also, I like to say, I, I say to people at school, I say, you know, a lot of times the people that teach us more about ourselves are those that we don't like. So if we had to put ourselves in the in a car ride, and I'm not talking about you, Jamie, because I you know I love you. It's not that was what the fight was about. But when we are in a car ride with someone we don't like, that's when we learn about more about ourselves and how we respond and what we're about when we have to be with people that we don't necessarily want to be with. I know we're supposed to love everybody, but come on, that's never serious. So we learn more about ourselves, and I think God gives us both those experiences so that we can. Um, I think also, you guys are going to hear a lot about what I think, but I think also that um, we don't pay attention to a lot of the women in the Bible. And actually, I avoided the women in the Bible because the commentary on the women in the Bible were not satisfying to me whatsoever. So we'd go to the women's retreats and uh, we would hear about the women in the Bible and then we would hear... But they were so obedient. And I just don't want to be obedient. I just, I, I looked at that, and, you, and of course I'm a pleaser, so I'm in the audience, and I'm like, yes, I really want to be obedient. But then I get home, and I, you just want to scream, because it, it's just not me. I mean, it's just not where I feel natural. Not that I'm not obedient, and I'm rambling again, but um, it, it just made me sick to listen t- to that. Personally, um, but what was interesting is you get to these women retreats and they have these nice little lessons about how we need to be submissive to our husbands, obedient. And then after the women's retreat on the car ride home or maybe at dinner, um, we saw a whole different person that was there. Not really the person that was sitting in the auditorium and nodding to all the, the teaching, but the person that they really were that said, the kind of cut loose and had a little bit of fun that wasn't really fitting into the spiritual Christian woman that we had just heard about, which was refreshing and I actually like better. Um, so I don't know if you guys have figured this out yet, but uh, it's Mother's Day and we're going to talk about Sarah and the Bible. So really all the guys that came here today, you're really coming for a chick flick. Um, sorry, we already roped you in. you got to sit down now. It's too embarrassing to stand up and leave. Um, so that's a disclaimer. You are going to hear a little bit about the woman's approach to Abraham's journey into Canaan, but we're going to see it through Sarah. 
Um, so I was looking at, actually, when I was planning this, I was actually thinking of talking about Abraham's journey. And, of course, I was trying to be on Aaron's boat. Well, the journey has to be symbolic of something else. And Sarah, maybe she's not even a woman. Maybe she's like the Holy Spirit and Abraham. So I'm going down this whole thing trying to find something really deep and meaningful. And probably by Thursday or Friday in tears, I'm like, you're never going to find it. Maybe Sarah wasn't the Holy Spirit going down to Egypt. I I still think it is. I'm still trying to find it. But not for today. Um, We're going to talk about Sarah... Yeah, right. When I get that, I'll let you know. So we're going to talk about Sarah, the woman, which actually is enough to talk about. And um, I've got a disordered PowerPoint, so we're going to find the one that oh, we're going to find the one that I want. So first of all, one thing I do want to mention, though, is one thing I know. And I had to sit there after. Uh, all this time of study, I had to sit there and center myself and say to myself, what is it that I truly believe? What is it that I know about myself as a woman in today's age, as a woman, as a Christian woman, what do I truly believe about myself? And one thing I came up with is we are all creators, and I truly believe that. We once, it was, gosh, several years back, I can't even remember how many years, we had a book club in the church that was so much fun. We would uh, get books, and thanks to Jamie, who brings up all the creative ideas, we met as women, and we took books, and we altered the pages. We just uh, pasted stuff over the pages, and we would trade books, and each one of us would have a different book for that day, and we'd have to decorate the pages. And it was so much fun. We learned so much about each other because we were creating something for another person and giving it to that person. And if you're not a really artistic or creative person, that could be really daunting. You're kind of putting yourself out there um, with your little construction paper and whatever you tried to decide to put on there. But we had so much fun and we laughed. And part of it is we were bringing ourselves to the table through this book club, through our creations, through something that we created and we gave to someone. Also, as a teacher, when you look at literature pieces that people have written through the past ages, those are also creative pieces. That's like their little babies. or their, It's their capsule of human experience throughout time. One thing, I taught 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, and one thing I hated about 7th grade, I always groaned when I got 7th grade literature because they wanted to always do, I don't know what it is about the 7th grade and the Holocaust, but we always had to study the Holocaust in seventh grade. And I'm not really a serious person. It's really kind of hard for me to bring some of those stories out to kids. And then you're dealing with, is this appropriate? Is this not appropriate? You know, a lot of those things that involve the Holocaust. But when you look at the writings, what that is, is that is people actually bearing their experience, being able to write it in a creative way so that people and generations can understand what they were going through at that time, and actually be there with them. And that's what I love so much about um, literature and creativity. The other thing that, and we'll talk about this later on creation, so remember that, but we create a lot of things that we don't realize we create inside our minds. I can create whole scenarios in my mind. Have you guys ever done that where you've created, okay, I'm going to go out 
and do this, and this is what it's going to look like. And in your mind, you've created this whole scenario of what's going to happen, and you're either surprised because it works out as planned, or you're horrified because everything you thought was going to be great does not work when you trip over the front step and land on your face, right? So sometimes we don't um, see those creations come into real life, but they're still creating it in the thoughts in our heads. So really, when you look at the stories from the Bible, they are human creation of life's experiences. So when we read about Abraham and Sarah, we're actually reading about their life experiences, their creation of something that happened to them. But what is really amazing is by the time that we get it, uh, I don't know, like 4,000 years later, we actually bring it back to life with what we see in those stories and how they apply for us today. That is truly a living being. So I always like literature because they live and breathe thousands of years later with the people that are experiencing them. It's almost like a handshake back in history. So I was reading about Sarah, Sarai, and um, I was surprised to find, I found out when I was, I was going through different uh, websites, and the one thing I think that is interesting that I've done in the past that I've changed is in the past when I was studying something, I would only go to Christian websites. Oh, that's a Christian website. I'm only going to look at that because I was, there was always that fear that if I looked at a different website that was not Christian, then I was going to be led astray, that I was going to come into some kind of false teaching and then, um, I don't know, end up doing animal sacrifices in two years or something. I don't know what we're afraid of. So as I was um, going through the Internet, I found out that several of the Jewish commentaries uh, in the Torah have, there's this legend about Sarah that, that Sarai wasn't her first name, that her first name was actually Yiska, which means to see. So that was her, like when she was born, that was the name that her parents gave to her. And I'd never seen that before, but I decided, okay, so I tell my students whenever you research something, see if you can't find five different sources that agree to that same story to find the validity in it. And it really is. You can Google it, and it's it's out there in more than one source. So it's listed by some of the commentaries in the Torah that Sarah or Sarai actually started with the name Yiska, and what that means is to see. And legend has it that Sarah Yiska, as a girl, had the gift of sight and the gift of prophecy, as well as she was very beautiful to look at. So it dealt with your five senses, where you actually can physically see her external beauty. And it also went with the inner senses, where she could actually see things around her that other people could not see. So she had the gift of sight of seeing through things. Um, (laughs) I have to laugh at this because I taught middle school for so many years, and this makes sense to me, so... Yiska, she was born, and then by the time she got to be adolescent, she decided, well, I'm going to rebel against my parents and change my name. Um, I believe that. I've seen that happen. Um, So she changed her name to Sarai when she was a young woman, which means princess. And some of the commentaries think that she changed it because she did not want to be seen for her natural beauty. She wanted to be seen for her inner beauty and what she would have to offer to society. 
So is it possible that Sarai, when she was a young girl, had a dream of something more than just a beautiful woman? I mean, most of us dream to kind of be attractive, right? And she decided, well, I don't really want... No one's ever happy with what they have, are they? i tell you what. But anyway, so she changed her name to mean princess because I believe she wanted people to see outside of her beauty and inside her heart where she wanted to truly give something to the world. And I think deep down most of us have a desire to leave a part of ourselves behind when we leave. Something Give something to society where we actually feel like we are giving a part of ourselves in an authentic way and um, feel whole and ourselves when that occurs. So she changed her name to be Princess, but here's the problem about Sarai. And when I teach literature, I, th- I teach, okay, you've got to talk about the characters, and then you have to talk about the setting, and then you have to talk about the conflict. So I looked at the setting. Sarai grew up in the land of Ur. I don't want that. Okay, so Sarah grew up in the, the month, uh, I mean, the land of Ur, and I looked up what that, they actually, archaeologists is actually, have actually found the city in the 1920s and the 1930s, and they've actually taken all the artifacts of the city, and the main god, or the god that was controlling the city is Sin, the god Sin. And I thought, well, okay, uh, Sin means that that's a terrible god, Right. But this sin god was actually the god of fertility. Who knew, right? So the god figure at the very beginning of the city of Ur was a a bull, and the shape of the horns was like a crescent moon, because the god sin was also celebrated by the moon. So he was the, the moon god, and it was a bull with a crescent horn. Then strangely... Throughout the years, it changed to an old man with a long gray beard and got a little weird. I don't know why that changed. But you look at Sarai, who's living in a city who is controlled by a god called Sin that believes in fertility. And when you look at Sarah's name and you look at the fact that she had the gift of sight or she had the gift of prophecy, my guess is she was probably a very spiritual person. And she's living in a land where fertility is highly valued and you actually were receiving favor from God if you were fertile. And the city of Ur was a very rich city in education, in art. It was a trade city. It would trade with many different cities around. It was a metropolitan city. So you have Sarai growing up into a country that believes in fertility, that is like, like almost like a New York of our day. And she's very beautiful. But I think that Sarah probably could have as many people, guys as she wanted, but she chose Abraham. The interesting thing about Abraham is he wasn't from the city of Ur. His father moved them to the city of Ur when he was a boy And so probably did not, my guess is he didn't have the same ideology as the city itself. I'm wondering if Sarai was attracted to that. If she didn't see Abraham as kind of a a different type of person. And so they marry, and you can imagine her pain 
when she's unable to bear children. So think about this. She's living in the city of Ur, which um, highly desires fertility, and she's not fertile. And I would think that a lot of times you would think that you would not have the praise of the God or the favor of the gods if you're not fertile in a city that worships a fertile God. So I think this is probably very unsatisfying for her to be in this city. So as the story goes on, Abraham hears from God and God tells him that he's the true God and to leave the city of Ur into the land of Canaan. So I looked up Canaan and I thought, okay, so if Ur is um, means the city of light, but it's also the city that, that uh, worships sin, what is Canaan? So I looked up Canaan. Canaan is interesting. It means synchronicity, which is, and I had to look that up. I know I was a lit teacher and I taught vocabulary and grammar, but I thought, well, I'll look it up and see what that means. Synchronicity is is defined for Canaan as a place when all come together for mutual benefit. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. So God was asking Abraham to leave the city of Ur, which was full of worldly wisdom, full of worldly, um, you know, it was a good city. But he was asking them to leave their old traditional ways to a new city that is the city of synchronicity where all come together for mutual benefit. So I couldn't help but consider the parallels of the story to my own life, where in a lot of ways I've rejected some of the traditions of men that I have seen throughout my years and said, you know what, really that's not something that really um, resonates with me, some of the traditions that we've had. And I really am on a journey myself of coming to a place where all come together and I really find where I truly am authentic and I find my true um, calling or purpose, where I'm actually reproducing something in my life that has part of me in it that's going to last. And in order to do that, and a lot of my search for this, I've had to turn my back on some of the traditions that I was raised in. I've had to turn my back on some of the things that I was taught some of the feelings that I've had, some of the um, stereotypes that I've had towards people, and some of the ways that I've thought about the world <clears throat> totally. One thing that, one example is, as I was growing up, I really believe that you reap what you sow, and the persons that wronged me were going to get theirs. I really believe that, and actually I thrived on it, because if someone wronged me, They were going to get theirs, and God was going to be my champion in this. He was going to bless me by cursing them, right? And I truly believe that, and I think I actually ran on that motor for a while um, until God started changing my heart with him saying that he wants to bless everyone, which was really kind of a, a hard thing for me to take, that God actually wanted to bless everyone, even though they deserved it or didn't deserve it. And as I go down this journey, I realize that that actually is more authentic to what I really feel in my heart, to what I further in the past had justified in my mind. See, I created in my mind that these people need some kind of punishment to, to they deserved it, right? And, and Aaron's been talking about how um, 
If someone does something to wrong someone else, they need to pay a price. In my job at school, we're starting to do what we call so, um, restorative justice. And in the past, if a kid misbehaved, we suspended him for a couple days, which was hard on us because normally it was an inside suspension, in-school suspension, which meant we had to babysit this kid who's barred off of their mind for two days. And it's it's just a rough two days for us because I don't know why we expect a kid that can't behave in a classroom to sit in a desk for eight hours straight looking at a wall and they're going to behave is going to teach them a lesson. But that was the way we were raised, that they need to have a punishment to fit the crime. Um, but when you look at statistics, you find that kids that are being suspended don't change. And so I started something new. I'd bring in these kids from um, suspension into my office, and I would just start to get to know them and try to figure out what makes them tick and start talking to them and having conversations and just really starting to work on what their strengths were and not their weakness and I found that I could get them to do things that normally teachers can't get them to do because they just really wanted to have that connection, that relationship. And if we're able to reconnect them to their 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 population at their classroom, that their their behavior is actually going to improve, not not um, continue to be the same. So my thoughts have changed, which is my journey from leaving traditions behind and going towards something that's going to be mutually beneficial towards all parties. So when I have a little boy that has misbehaved, um, and actually some of the teachers were angry about it. They're like, what do you mean? That kid was really naughty and now they're having fun with you playing trouble in your office. I'm like, yep. If you send him to the office, then you lose control of what happens to him. And I'm not very liked at school sometimes. But but I feel good about myself because I feel like I'm leaving some of those traditions behind and moving toward new ideas that I think are going to help me evolve and help others around evolve around me. And I feel like Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai are in the same position where they have to leave what they know in order to find something new that's going to be mutually beneficial. So they're heading towards our land in Canaan. What we know as the story goes on is they leave where they're at and they end up in Canaan and they find that there's a famine. And how many times in our journey do we travel? And we know what our end destination is going to be, but along the way we get discouraged. We sometimes ask God, we say, God, where are you, man? I, I was hearing you so clearly before and now I'm not hearing you at all. Um, and you start questioning yourself. Well, the same thing happened to Abram and Sarai. Because the text says that they went to um, Canaan and they had a famine, so they had to move into Egypt. So what we know about Egypt is Egypt was a country that enslaved people. And it was a highly um, civilized city, so it was highly sought after, but yet they also believed in enslaving people. So when um, we can actually look at Abraham getting into, and this is why I should have put these in order, but um, our creative part of us again. So we're creators. 
We're built in the image of God. So God, it says that we are made in the image and the likeness of God. And God is a creator. That's the first thing we hear about God at the beginning of the Bible is that he created the earth, right? But we are creators in a lot of different ways. So when someone comes up to me and they say, oh, I'm not creative. Yeah, you are. You're creating in your head all the time. One thing that I've seen a lot of in myself is I create fear. And I don't think that fear is really a godly emotion. In fact, it tells us that God doesn't give us the spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. But yet we create fear in our heads. Having teenage kids, a son and a daughter and two daughters, you create so many scenarios in your head out of fear of what could happen to them when they start driving. Actually, when my my kids started driving, my vocabulary went from several syllables to one. You know, stop, don't, what? You know, some words were not very nice, one-syllable words, and... You know, you just totally turn, you lose your mind. Um, we create fear in our mind. It's not necessarily the actions that we have when we're in fear that are wrong. It's, it's not even the focus of what we should deal with. So a lot of times when I work with kids at school, what they do is out of fear. It's not out of their actions. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll punish the actions and not get to the root of what's causing them to act that way. I had a, uh, I don't, I, I'm kind of careful about who I talk about because, you know, it's Pueblo. But um, I, I have several, this is how I'll say it. I had several students in the past who um, have, especially girls that have really uh, strange behaviors when it comes to social connection. So they will hit, they will punch, they'll spit on people. Do, do things like that that are, we see as actions that are unacceptable in the classroom. And we're focusing on the actions. But when they come into my room and we start, I get to know them, I come to find out that the reason they're behaving the way they're behaving is because they're afraid of that social connection. Because somewhere in their life they have lost, that hasn't been a safe place for them. So in order to deal with that fear, they act out. Um, by being uh, physically kind of abusive. And when we deal with the fear and we try to work with that fear, then the actions change. So we actually create fear in our mind and then our actions follow along. I saw this uh, quote of something I've been reading. Um, and this one's from Dr. Helen and I can't uh, Shockman. And I'm going to read it to you. It says, you may believe that you are responsible for what you do, but not for what you think. Now, the way this is written is she she wrote this, and she got a lot of criticism from the Christian uh, world because she was writing what we would do. I've done this before where you write in free journaling, where you, think that, where you say that God's talking to you, and you write it down, and you just kind of, this is where this came from. So this is God talking to her. So when he says you, it's God talking to her saying you. So it says, you may believe that you are responsible for what you do, but not for what you think. The truth is that you are responsible for what you think, because it is only at this level that you can exercise choice. What you do comes from what you think. You cannot separate yourself from the truth by giving autonomy to behavior. This is controlled by me automatically, meaning um, the behavior. 
as soon as you place what you think under my guidance. Whenever you are afraid, it is a sure sign that you have allowed your mind to miscreate, not create, but miscreate, and not and have not allowed me, God, to guide it. So when we look at fear in our head, it always is a disconnection of faith in a lot of ways. And I think this is what was going on with Abram when he was in Canaan. I think he disconnected from God and faith and got into fear. And so he fled to Egypt for sustenance or for for to, to be able to be fed. And a lot of times, don't we do that? Sometimes we go to the world to find answers instead of going to God. When I was reading about this story, of course, they're in, they're going to Egypt and all of a sudden fear grip, grips Abram and he says, you know, and, and this was what always gets me because I think Sarah was well into her years. I, I think like 80 or something like that. So he's looking at his wife saying, hmm, you're pretty desirable still. I don't think Sarah actually, I think she was very youthful. I think she was rejuvenated. I don't think she looked like our, Typical, not the 80-year-olds, but I don't think she looked like what we would thought. You know, we think of a gray-haired, kind of sagging woman, right? Um, but she must have been desirable because Abram's looking at her and he's saying, you know what, you're still very beautiful, and if the Pharaoh sees you, he's going to want you for his wife, and he's going to kill me to get to you. So let's just make a plan. You pretend to be my sister. I'll pretend to be your brother. Because really we are, because there's some kind of um, connection. And uh, we're really not lying, because don't we justify things like that? I'm really not lying, but I'm kind of getting out of it. I'm kind of going through, you know. I could just see this conversation, and Sarah's like, okay. Um, and then commentary says, wasn't Sarah obedient? She was so obedient to her husband. She allowed her him to give her to another man. Hmm. I think a man would say that. I think it would, a woman would say, what? You want to trade me to a pharaoh? I don't think any woman would buy into that. For a, it, it would take a really, really doormat to allow your husband to, to send you off for his benefit to another man. Well, I can't even see anything admirable about that with Sarah. I really can't. I don't mean to be offensive, but I don't think that's where Sarah was coming from. I don't think she was coming from a place of obedience. I think she was coming from a place of faith. And it does say that Sarah could see into things. So I think Sarah really knew where Abram had lost faith. I think this is a time when Sarah had not. And when and Abram came up with this plan, she's like, okay. But I think she knew that God was going to save her from this because she had a destiny and she knew that God was in it. And regardless of what happens to her on her path for the desti- for, towards her destiny, she knew that God was going to provide a way out. So I think she was okay with this. I think she's like, yep, God will rescue me. And sure enough, as we read more into the story, we find out that Pharaoh was plagued by Sarai in his house and actually didn't come close to her because he, he was plagued. So we don't know what the plagues were, but um, he just didn't want to go there with her. In fact, he gave her back to Abram along with Hagar, a slave, and several. He just wanted to like, take her. 
you know, I'll give you anything. He gave her. And even um, tradition says that maybe Hagar was Pharaoh's daughter. So he was actually giving his daughter to this family because he just didn't want to be plagued anymore. Um, and how many times, I mean, I mean, that's reassuring for me because when you look at the world and you look at your destiny, your faith in God helps you become, keeps you from being ensnared with the trappings of this world. So she was not going to be a slave of Pharaoh because of her faith. And I think that's really interesting that we're not enslaved when we have faith. We're not enslaved by fear. We're not enslaved by, a lot of times John and I, we were looking for a house. We're not enslaved by how's this going to happen? Where's the money going to come from? If our intent is this is what we're going to do, God's going to provide that way. And I think that's the place that Sarah was in. Um, but as we go through the story, uh, we find that Sarah, time goes on in Canaan, and Sarah, I think, gets weary. I think she gets into fear, and she decides that maybe she missed it. Maybe her destiny is not to give, to, to have a child. Maybe her destiny is not to be a princess over many. And I think she loses heart and she says, you know, Abram, it's customary that we give our servants to our husbands if we can't provide children. Um, I think that maybe I should give Hagar to you. We can have a child. And it says in the Bible that we can have a family. So she was including herself in that formula trying to make these the inheritance of Abram come about in an um, earthly way. And how many times do we do this in our lives where we're not quite there, but it's good enough? And we think, you know what? It's not a bad life. We can make this happen. John and I were looking at a house, and we liked the house, and so we put a bid on it, and it's crazy. I don't know what's going on with the real estate these days, but first day it was on the market Four people put a bid on this house. It was over appraised value. Um, we fought for the bid. We got the bid, and then it came, the counter offer came. And uh, I, we looked at the counter offer. I looked at. I talked to our mortgage broker and found that if we were to get the house, we would have to pay probably 600 more per month than what we originally had anticipated was in our budget. I really liked the house, and I know that we could have made it work. We've always made things work financially if we wanted to. Whether we've had um, famine or feast, we've always been able to make things work financially. And so I thought, you know, we can make this work. We can make it happen. And, and I'm sure that if we would have taken that offer and if we would have taken the counter offer, we would have made it happen and I'd be moving in a house in two weeks. But we decided not to do it. And I reflected on this with Sarah and I thought, you know what, God's going to honor what we do regardless of how we do it, but is it really going to be Canaan where everything comes together and it's mutually beneficial? We could have moved into that house, but I don't think it's really what is going to be the best for us. Um, Before I was a teacher, I worked in business for about 10 years. And I really wanted to be a teacher when I was in high school, and I let people talk me out of it. There was like too many teachers at that time, and so teachers weren't finding jobs. And so a lot of people in my life said, you know what, you really need to get a degree that's going to be useful. So I went into business. I got my business degree. I was in business for 10 years, and I was successful. I got promoted. 
I had a pretty good salary. I liked my job, but I really didn't feel like it was me. It was the authentic me that was going to work every single day. It didn't, I didn't feel passionate about what I did. I really don't like numbers. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, what did I do? So here I am. Uh, my first husband left me. I'm a single mom and I'm, and again, you're in, in the time where Things are hard and you're learning more about yourself and you're learning more about what you want to do with life. And I, and I sat down and I said, you know, God, I really wanted to be a teacher when I was in high school. I don't want anybody defining me. That's what I really wanted to do. Help me find a way. There's got to be a way. I'm a single mom. I don't know where I'm going to get the time to get another degree. Just help me find the way. So um, I, I knew my intent was out there. I had the intent to become a teacher. So like about, I don't know, six months later, there was automatically this teacher shortage, and they were taking teachers with emergency licensure that had four-year degrees. And I had a friend, and she says, there's an opening in our school. Um, you can get your emergency teacher license. You can start teaching like you want to. You don't have to have a teaching degree. And I'm like, okay. So I went Thursday on an interview, found out Friday I had the job, went into my old job. Now, I'm a single mom, depending on my income. Went in Sunday, wrote an email saying I quit my job, cleaned out my office, and I was in the teaching position on Monday, which is totally rude to do to your employer, but I did. And I knew I was burning the bridges. I was turning my back completely on a world I had known in business for a promise that I had of maybe becoming a teacher in the future. And the way that it works is you get your emergency teacher license, you teach for a year, and then they they fire you because you don't have a teaching license and tell you that they're not going to hire you back. So at the end of the year, they fired me, told me they're not going to have me back, but I still believed that I was going to be a teacher so sure enough, next year comes along, I get a call. Hey, we still can't fill that position. Come and teach for one more year. So this time I said, well, I'm going to get into a teacher in residency position. And the one we had was here, and it was a two-year program. So I went over there, and they said, man, you're going to have to take 24 credit hours to catch up before you can even start the program. So I was discouraged. So I started Googling it, and I found out there was another program called Alternative Licensure that is still recognized by the state of Colorado. That only is a one-year program. And um, I talked to them, and they said, oh, you only need 12 credit hours. I'm like, well, I'm liking this. And they said, well, and they told me how much it would cost. So I went to our, the employer, and I said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. And they said, absolutely not. In order to get your teaching license that's represented that we want you to have, you have to go to our school, take the two years, and we will not accept this one-year program. So I called up the place, and I said, they won't accept the alternative licensure program. And they're like, what? It's, it's, this is accepted by CDE. It's just the same. The next day, and this place was in um, about three hours away, the next day, they had someone from their college in the human resources office demanding that they take my alternative licensure course as acceptable training to become a teacher. And they got it. And so I was enrolled in this online alternative licensure. And then I started telling other teachers that were in the same boat. And then they finally called me and said, stop, 
don't recommend any more people. We're starting to really tick off your district. I'm like, okay. So anyway, so I went through the online, and I didn't know how I was going to pay for it because I'm a single mom, and um, I get this phone call from the college, and they tell me that they found a grant that they can give me where they will pay for, it was almost like two-thirds of my program, and um, that way was provided. So by the end of the year, I was a licensed teacher, and then right as that year came, they said, Jackie, we're not going to fire you if you could prove that you're a licensed teacher, but you need to prove it because next year we're not going to hire any more emergency licensures. So it was amazing how this all occurred, and it was really a affirming piece for me that is if, if God is in it, and if this is your destiny, there's ways. You just have to take some risks and um, keep going forward and not turn back to where you were. I could have easily gone back and said, Ugh, this is too hard. I'm going to go back, but I didn't. So Sarah's at this point in her life when she gives Hagar to Abraham, and they have a child. But Hagar is kind of harassing Sarai and telling her, you know, I don't know what went on. I can just imagine because I know how girls fight, and it was probably just really ugly and yucky. But, you know, we think of Sarah as the obedient person and the person that was obedient to her husband, but yet she's kind of dictating what to do with Hagar, if you've noticed that. And Abraham's going along with the program, right? So Abraham, I mean, so Sarah says to Abraham, Abram, let's get rid of Hagar. She's a pain in the neck. And they, they kick her out of, uh, she kick her out into the wilderness. And I think sometimes we have to do that in our life. We have to look at what is in our life that we've created for ourselves. For example, I'm a major pleaser, so I will overcommit to where I drive myself into a nervous breakdown because I overcommit because I want to please people. So I'll say, oh, yeah, I'll do this, yeah, I'll do this. And next thing you know, I have no time for my family, no time for the things that I like to do, no peace, and I have to kick a lot of those commitments to the curb. And I think in, in a lot of our lives, we have to look at what in the world is pulling us down and causing us to, to not commit to what we want out of life, that sometimes we have to... Get rid of it. And if we want to look at the symbolism with Sarai kicking Hagar out of camp, I I truly believe she just needed to focus, and this wasn't the way that she could do it, so she had to get rid of Hagar. But we know the story turns out well. Hagar is greeted by an angel. All is good. Hagar comes back into camp. She's kind of a little bit more behaved now, and life goes on, right? But Sarah, Sarah is still childless. And then Abraham... Finally, you know, there's a lot of things that go on in Abraham that cause him to change and to look towards his destiny. God blesses Abram and changes Abram's name to Abraham. And this is the first time that Sarah's name is changed by God. So first, Sarah gets a name from her parents. Then she gets a name that she chooses, which is princess. And then she gets a name from God that says, you know what, you've got this little lady bitty dream of being a princess, but for, but when God's in it, it becomes a big dream. And we're going to call you mother of many generations. And he changes her name into an even bigger dream. And that is when everything is mutually coming together for everyone's benefit. And she has, she bears a child. And that's when we 
hopefully find a part in our life where everything comes together with God and we know that our destiny and what we want to bear and what we want to give to the world comes about in a great way, more than we can create in our minds because God's in it. So I just want to encourage you guys, as I was reading through this, um, there's a couple things I, I, I wanted to say. And we need to start looking at some of these women characters because they're no slouches. I mean, they're, they're more than just obedient. They're faithful people who left their lives and, and actually bore fruit that we can look at today and become better people, all of us. And when we look at Sarah, we realize that she was a normal human being with normal struggles. We, we see where she had fear and she created messes for herself in a lot of ways. But yet what remained in Sarah was her faith that even though the world told her that she was not going to be valuable to society, she still believed that she was going to be valuable and that God had to be in it. And if God was in it, her value would show and she would become greater than what she imagined. So I wanted to encourage you guys, even though sometimes we're on journeys and we feel like we're about ready to give up and we um, may not have anything to give to the world, we may not be valuable, we may not feel like um, parts of ourselves are hidden that may never show, um, that that's not what God has in mind for us. God has in mind for us a whole different journey that leads to an end where everything comes together. The only thing is that we have to learn is patience. And we have to realize that we have strengths. I think a lot of times we tend to focus on our weaknesses. Sarah could have stayed back in Ur and she could have focused completely on her weaknesses and the fact that she couldn't bear children. But instead she chose to turn her back on that and move forward with the strength that she had, and that was that she could see and that she had faith. So I think in a lot of cases we need to turn our back on what we think are our weaknesses and not listen to those voices that society has given us that said that we're not valuable, we're not worthy, we're not acceptable. We need to just tune it out, kick Hagar out of the camp, right? And start seeing ourselves for who God sees us and moving towards our destiny where we can accomplish something that's going to be life-giving and life-living and will last forever. So I think that's the lesson we can learn. And that's it. So.